Thank you, worship team. Appreciate uh, these old, uh, let me these familiar cor- tunes that we get to sing today, especially as we spend our Sunday, our last Sunday of the year, our last day of the year, uh, together with uh, with God's people. I uh, want we welcome all of you here today from uh, near and far. We're glad to have you with us, uh, first-timers or uh, returning visitors, or uh, maybe you've been here for a long time already. We're glad to have you worshiping t- t- together with us. Uh, it is our desire to, as a church, to magnify Christ, and uh, as we do so, we open up His Word, and, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, please take with uh, your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 54, and if you are relatively new to the church, we have been going through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is just that wonderful book that describes this salvation uh, that is uh, God, God's salvation that He gives and offers to not only the nation Israel, but uh, to the nations of the world as well. Isaiah 54. We arrive at Isaiah 54 today. Uh, this passage that, uh, <clears throat> that follows that very well-known text in Isaiah 53. Before we look to the text this morning, and we'll, since we're going to look at actually two and a half chapters today, 54, 55, and, and 50, part of 56 today, uh, I'll read the text within the sermon. But before we do that, before we look to the word, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths within. And we pray that you would be glorified as your word is opened up to us. Help us to understand what your word means and what it says to your people. And Lord, that we would understand its application, its challenge its, uh, for us today. Lord, we pray that your spirit would uh, fill us and be our teacher. We thank you that your word reveals us to your plan of salvation to us that it is a plan that is centered upon this one servant whom you have sent, this servant whom is your son. And Father, we pray that uh, we would grow in the knowledge of you and the knowledge of your son, that we would grow in our love for you and also our love for the world. So Lord, we pray that you be glorified now and pray that your word goes forth and that it would not return void that it would accomplish for that which you intended to do as it goes forth into the hearing of your people. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask you a question a little today. We'll start off with a question. Uh, have you ever met someone famous? You know, met someone famous? You know, probably you met somebody famous. You know, it can be any type of famousness, or infamous even. Uh, but a famous, the idea is that you met some, perhaps somebody that uh, uh, you looked up to, you thought, wow, that's some famous athlete. Maybe you, you came across Stephen Curry, or you came across some, a well-known actor or actress that you really like, like, you know, uh, say, uh, Sylvester Stallone, you know, or somebody like that, uh, uh, or some, um, maybe it's a famous musician that you really, you know, Appreciate you, you, you know. I don't know, uh, date myself, but maybe you, you, you came across Sting's. Oh man, you know, when it was the police and you know, and back in the days, or maybe you met some, you're in, the, you're in the politics, you love politics, or it doesn't even mean you, if, but you see your president, you're like, whoa, the president, or the this mayor, or the governor. Uh, you would probably, um, when you meet somebody famous, well, um. If we had time, I'd just ask, go around and ask you, oh, who, who's the most famous person you've ever met? But uh, uh, we don't have time for that. That'd be kind of fun. Um, most famous person I ever met, uh, not too famous, uh, probably just a mayor, uh, but that's many g- generations ago. Anyways, what do you do when you meet someone famous? Do you just like, oh, 
uh, something famous, you know. Yeah, okay, go on. But a lot of times what we do, we'll, we'll, if we're brave enough, we'll, we'll go up and shake their hand and say, oh, I, you know, uh, I know, okay, I'll, I'm going to tell you, I met Mayor Willie Brown when he was mayor, you know, walking downtown. I, was, I felt so like, he was literally walking next to me. I'm like, whoa, this is weird. So I had to say, oh, hi, Mayor, you know, the fool that I was. So just, I just had to say hi to him because he's the mayor. He's walking around the streets like, well, this is cool, uh, like a normal guy. Or maybe you met some movie star or an actor, you, you want to get their autograph or you want to get their picture with them, right? Or maybe, uh, you know, you say, oh, I got the napkin that, you know, Stephen Curry wiped his mouth on. <laughs> right here. And then, of course, you have it, you're going to post it on social media, right? You're going to let everybody know that you, you know, or yourself, if you can get a selfie, that's the best, I think. That's pretty cool, right? You know, when you're something famous, you react to it. You respond to it in some way. You'll do something about it. In fact, if you don't, and then you, later on you tell your friends, what are your friends going to say to you? You fool. Why didn't you, why didn't you say hi to them? Why didn't you take a picture with them? Why didn't you, yeah, I don't think you, you didn't really meet them. You, you're lying. Okay. Well, that's, if I was your friend, that's what I'd say. But... Nevertheless, you know, uh, it's a little silly, I know, but I'm, I just want to get your attention. Uh, when you meet someone famous, you re- respond. There's almost an expectation from others that you would do something about it, that you're going to respond to this person, you're going you're gonna to respond to that person, whoever they are. Uh, if you, maybe you don't even like them, you're going to say, oh, your movie was terrible, or your song was terrible. But a lot of times you'll say, oh, I really like that, or, I really love this. Well, today's passage is a call to respond. In fact, all of chapter 54 through 57 of Isaiah is a call to respond. And it's a call to respond to the most famous person in all the universe, the most significant person in all of human history. And that's the person that we came to be introduced to in Isaiah 53 last week. Isaiah 53 that we looked at last week revealed to us the significance of this one who's called the messianic servant, the servant who would be the Lamb of God, the servant whom come, who we have come to know as being Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was the Son of God who came to, be a, to suffer for our sakes so that we could be saved from our sins. We came to know him and we were introduced to him in Isaiah 53. And so chapters 54 to 57 call us to respond. And it's important that we rightly respond to the Messiah. To rightly respond to Jesus is the most significant action that any of us will ever make in one's life. How do you respond to Jesus? He came to die as a substitute for your sins. And because of that sacrificial death, God responds. How? By exalting him. How do you respond? As we look at our passage today, uh, we're going to see that God uh, calls two kinds of people or two groups of people to rightly respond to the servant in chapters 54 to 56. His call, just here's a simple outline for us, a two-point outline. Uh, There's going to be so many details because it is two and a half chapters, but uh, hopefully you'll get the big picture. It's going to be a big flyover of these two chapters, but the Big picture, the main idea is that we would respond to the Messiah. We respond to the servant. We respond to this this offer of salvation that has been freely made to the world, to not only to Israel, but to the nations of all. And we need to respond. We need to respond. So let's take a look then today at these two groups of people 
whom the Lord calls his salvation in his servant. The first group we're going to call is the Lord calls or to respond is an extension to the nation Israel. The Lord's call to Israel in verse, chapter 54, verse 1 to 17. And here's where I kind of take a little bit of a sigh, a little bit of uh, time to can give us a little theological reminder of our theological background, theological uh, uh, um, um, backstory to our interpretation of Isaiah. Um, uh, throughout Isaiah, we've seen many prophecies, or many prophecies of uh, the coming Messiah. We've seen many prophecies of judgment. We've seen many prophecies of a promise of salvation. And throughout it all, I've tried to be consistent in indicating that God's promise of salvation is not, a, his, a, a not first and foremost, a promise of salvation uh, to us, to all of us today. But it was directed towards a people, a certain people, and that is in Isaiah's day, that salvation was directed to the nation of Israel, the people, the, the people of the, Jew, the Jewish people, the, the Hebrew people, those who were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And despite today in our, in our time period where we, uh, the, of the existence in our present age of the church, all those who are believers in Jesus Christ, there's a question that people the theologians, evangelical theologians, Bible-believing theologians, debate. And they, they question and ask themselves, is there still a future for national Israel or ethnic Israel? Now, there are basically two camps, uh, two sides. And I want to just you know, preclude, just so I say beforehand that both sides are uh, held, each side is held by God-loving uh, Bible-believing, uh, godly people. So uh, we don't want to say that each side is evil, okay? But there is a, there's still debate among evangelical Christendom over whether there is a future for national Israel that is particularly a, sal- a, a promise of salvation for them that is distinct from the church. Now, the view that I take and that I've been teaching is that Israel and the church are, remain distinct, that there is a future for national Israel, that the promises that God made to Israel, to Abraham, his descendants, was a promise for his descendants, those who were literally uh, ethnically descended from Abraham. And so, as, and this is called, often called dispensational theology. And this stands in contrast to something called covenant, the- covenant theology. And covenant theology uh, is, takes the other side where there, they would say there is not a future for national Israel by themselves, but that Israel as a nation has been superseded. Sometimes the term is replaced, but superseded is probably the more theological term, superseded by the church. The church kind of folds in believing Israel. And so that's, uh, this is kind of the debate, these two sides. Um, there's further that could be said about dis- what dispensations are. Uh, we can talk furthermore talk about what the different covenants that covenant theology talks about. But I think for me, as I've been teaching, the one dis- important distinction that I wanted to make as we interpret the scriptures is that there is a future salvation for national Israel as a fulfillment of God's promises that he's made through the Old Testament prophets. And I believe and teach this because I believe that this is the conclusion of a more consistent, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that covenant theologians don't also hold to a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible as well. They do. 
But there is differences on whether a passage is going to be taken more literally or figuratively. And the burden of proof, of course, in, a, in any interpretation is that if the plain sense makes sense, there's no reason to look for any other sense. So I believe that when we apply the, a more consistent, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation, it leads us to this understanding that the promises that God makes of a land, of a nation, of blessings to Abraham in Genesis 12, it would be more naturally, to, literally, to, sensible to understand that those promises that he makes He's going to literally fulfill. He's going to make them into a mighty nation. He's going to give them a, a land to dwell in. And he's going to give them blessings through which the families of the earth will be blessed. What's more, I believe that this uh, distinction between Israel and church are made manifest or revealed in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 to 32, especially verse 26, teaches that there is going to be a future salvation for Nash. Israel. In this area, in this era of the church, we've, which we've looked at uh, in Romans 11, well, many years past, that there's a in this in this age dispensation, if you if you will, even that there is a partial hardening of Israel. That the nation of Israel as a whole is not believing in the Lord. They're they're not following after the Messiah. But this, one day, all Israel, as Paul writes, will be saved. And Paul, in, this, in that very passage, set quotes for us from the Old Testament prophecy. He says, as, just as it is written. He appeals to, to Old Testament prophecy to indicate that there is a future, at least even in his day, there is a future salvation for national Israel. And he quotes from Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21. Isaiah 27, verse 9. You see, Isaiah's future salvation is grounded in Old Testament prophecy. And so when we come to today's text, in this particular chapter, we could just look at it from some of the principles and how it might apply to ourselves. But when we interpret it, we want to understand that what it's saying is that the Lord is promising and is calling national Israel to salvation. This call to them is, is for exiled Israel and for, is grounded in the promise of salvation for them. I know this is very theological, and I can imagine you guys like, for many of you. Okay, except for those of you who, and that's okay, okay, for, but you got to hear it at least somewhere along the way. Uh, it begins. I remember when I first heard it as a college kid, like, what? But I, trust me, if, as you study the scriptures over life, you will start seeing, I, I believe that you'll see uh, some of this flesh out. And it really, it doesn't, for me, it's only flesh out. I'm in my late 40s. And it's starting to flesh together, piece together. It really is something that there's no verse you can quote to say, oh, this is why I'm dispensational or this is why I'm covenantal. But I believe when we consistently try to apply, uh, interpret each of the scriptures in its historical grammatical method, it will lead us to this understanding that God has a future for national Israel. Now, having said this, God calls then Israel to salvation, that he wants Israel to respond to their Savior. That's why there are organizations like Jews for Jesus. There's a belief that there's a call to them for salvation. And in this call to salvation, God makes uh, three general promises to them. First is the promise of multiplication in verse 1 to 3. Verse 1 to 3, we read, Shout for joy, O barren woman, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch out the curtains of your dwellings, spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, 
and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Exiled and enslaved Israel here is pictured as a, as a barren woman. There's three images that we're going to see here. And the first imagery is the picture of a barren woman. And as we have come to know, and I'm sure some of you as well, uh, there is great sorrow uh, when a woman who wants to bear children is unable to for whatever reason. And there's that sorrow that, that is associated with that barrenness is, a, is descriptive of Israel. But Israel's sorrow in captivity will somehow be replaced, according to God, with shouts of joy. There's going to be shouts of joy. Why? Because God promises an abundance of children for her somehow. God is going to cause the nation to be fruitful and multiply once again. So that the resulting is that she will, have, she will grow to such a extent that she's going to have to enlarge her tents, that she won't have to expand her, uh, her home. The future kingdom of Israel will be so great that her sense will extend beyond the promised land and it will extend to the nations. They will possess nations, it says. And this, I believe, will be fulfilled when Christ returns at a second time, when he establishes his millennial kingdom. But God makes another promise of Israel, and that is the promise of restoration. And we read in verses 4 to 10, we see a second imagery, an imagery of a shamed wife. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you in an outburst of anger. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting love and kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Israel, because of her sin, is pictured now as a wife who has been basically forsaken by her husband. That is, her husband being God. It sort of reminds us of the story of Hosea and the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer, how she became an adulterous woman, and so she was unfaithful to God, so she basically, uh, there was a separation between them. God here describes how, in a similar way, Israel, because of her sin, was deserving of God's wrath. And so there was a, there was a forsaking, according to verse, verse 7. For a brief moment, he forsook her. He sent her into captivity in, in Babylon. In fact, oh, because, because of his wrath, there was a, he hid his face from the nation, according to verse 8. So he turned away from her because and it, really she had already turned from, away from him with her idolatry. But though they had, she had been shamed and because of her sin, now he offers comfort to the nation by reminding them of who is her husband. Her husband is the maker, our creator, her creator. His name is the Lord of hosts. He's the almighty God. He's the one, the one who's redeeming them is the one that is called the Holy One of Israel. The God of all the earth is calling them back to himself. And he promises 
to receive her back. He will restore her, and he will do this out of compassion. He is not a spiteful husband. He is a loving husband. Notice the emphasis on God's compassion. Verse 7, with great compassion, I will gather you. Verse 8, with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. Verse 10, the Lord who has compassion on you. God is a God of compassion. And Israel, as his wife, though they had been unfaithful many times, God has compassion upon them. And he reaches out for them. He, he, will, he does what, he, what needs to be done to restore them to himself. In fact, God's compassion results in a promise, just like in the days of Noah, where after the flood, when he, didn't, he promised he would never destroy Israel, destroy the world in that way again. Here, he promised that once he saves Israel, he promises to not, never be angry and rebuke them in this way again. They would never be forsaken again. He would ensure that they would be faithful to him. And he just uses the descriptions of mountains and hills. I love it. This is great songs are sung, put to these words. Mountains may be moved, but not God's love. Hills may shake, but not his covenant of peace. This covenant of peace is, this, is a reference to the new covenant that God would make with Israel. Oftentimes when we think of new covenant, we think of Jeremiah 31. But the new covenant promises are even found later on in Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21, we see uh, this new covenant promises. A redeemer will come to Zion, Zion being Jerusalem, representative of Israel, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. So this is talking about redeemer for Israel. As for me, this is my covenant with them, with, that is Zion and Jacob, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. See, these are new covenant words. You read, kind of compare with Jeremiah 31. Again, pretty theological, but they are, the, they are the same. That there's the promise of God's spirit for his people, that his spirit will come upon them. And they who continually broke God's law are going to be taught in such a way of God's words that they will never be forgotten by him. They'll be, always be on their, in, on their mouth because it's in their hearts, and from now and forever, Israel will know peace with God because his spirit will dwell in them, and he will make sure that they will keep his words, his law. This is what God promises, the promise of restoration to them in this new covenant. Thirdly, God offers a promise of protection in verse 11 to 17, and here the imagery is of that of a ruined city. Verse 11 and 17 we read, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal, and your entire wall of precious stones. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established, you will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I've created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. This is his promise to those who are his servants, this is how he will vindicate them. The Lord will protect them, he promises them. They are described as a, as a 
ruined city, much like Jerusalem was in that day. And God, though, promises to rebuild them, the afflicted and distressed city. He will rebuild it with precious stones and gems. And again, this could be taken figuratively or it could be taken literally, and there's, there's debate about that. But I believe it's taken to be taken literally that God will rebuild the city of Jerusalem will be, because the Savior will enter into that city and rule from there and not bring salvation. Because this description, furthermore, is what we find in the New Testament, descriptive of the New Jerusalem in Revelation uh, chapter 21, verses 18 and 20, a New Jerusalem that will be, exist in the Millennial Kingdom. And not only do we see that the city will be rebuilt, and by the way, that, that city was not rebuilt with gems and stones uh, when they, they were, the exiles returned from Babylon, nor has it, even today, has the walls even come closely to be rebuilt with any precious, even stone, brick and mortar, much less precious stones. But not only that, not only will the city be rebuilt, but Israel's children will experience experience the, a, God's protection. They will, they will, uh, they will know uh, no oppression, no terror, no fear, because when whoever may come to try to assail them will fall, it says. God is going to be, is, will protect them, is the, is, the, is the general promise here. And all of this is pictured or to be fulfilled still in the future of redeemed Israel in the millennial kingdom. So God's promise to Israel of a future salvation. Now you're thinking, man, we're not Israel, so what does that have to do with us? But God's promise to Israel of future is a call for them then to turn to the servant for salvation in the present. You see, these words, when they were written, they were written to Isaiah and Israel in their day, a day before there was even an in captivity. It's a, it's a word that was, would be significant as a promise to the Israelites that were later in captivity, some 150 years later. And even though for every Israelite who would read this text, even though the salvation of the nation was still future, these promises served to inspire hope in them, hope in their Messiah, that they would put their trust in their God. And understanding that, though we as a church are not Israel, we worship and serve the same God. We are, in a sense, his servants as well. And we can draw hope and encouragement because if God will keep his promises to Israel, that is a powerful encouragement to us that he will keep his promises to the church to save us, to bring our salvation to completion. You can trust him to bring about our, the completion of our salvation in Christ. The problem, um, sometimes we think about our salvation, we think of it as something we possess already. We've been justified. And we do possess salvation in that sense. But there's a, the majority of our salvation, that according to God's word, that if you didn't know, is not yet complete. There's the promise of our sanctification, to be made more like Christ. All of us still on a daily basis fall into sin, given to sinful thoughts, sinful to deeds. And that sh- should be frustrating to you if you're a Christian. But God causes, promises a sanctification. That, that sanctification will be complete one day. And he promises us, furthermore, not only a sanctification, but a glorification. That's a third aspect of our salvation that will be complete. And all these are not complete. How do you know you're going to even will gain them? Because God has promised, and he's been, if he is faithful to Israel, he's going to be faithful to us. We can count on that. So in chapter 54, we've learned that God calls 
Israel, the nation, national Israel, ethnic Israel, to respond to the Messianic servant by believing and trusting in him for salvation. Now in chapters 55 to 56, God extends his call of salvation. He extends it, his salvation from Israel to the nations as well. We might even call this the Lord's call to everyone. It's a call to, to respond to the Messiah to everybody. It's not just for Israel, but it's everyone. And we've been kind of got hints of this in Isaiah 49 of how the Messiah, the servant, would be not just a light for Israel, but a light to the nations as well. The Lord's call is to extend to the nations we see here. Now, I would like to kind of get a little theolo- back to theology again a little bit. One of the criticisms, and honestly, a little fair criticism of times, of dispensational theology is that we teach multiple ways of salvation, that during different dispensations, God has revealed truth, and therefore, in that dispensation or that economy, uh, the people of God are to respond to the, the revelation of God in a certain way that would lead to their salvation. And I've even heard it to this way, especially when I was a younger Christian, that, well, in the Old Testament, God saves us by obeying the law. The Israelites were saved by obeying the law, so therefore they were saved. And then in the New Testament, God saves us by grace, by, through faith in Jesus Christ. You ever heard that one? No? Okay. Then it was just me. Okay. <laughs> or me, I misunderstood what I was hearing. But that's wrong, okay? So to respond, to be saved by obeying laws is a salvation by works. That is not what the Bible teaches, okay? So if you have that kind of dispensational thinking, you need to eject it. And that's what we need to eject it. That's, that's not how, that's not a dispensational doctrine that we would hold to. It was held by some. We believe that throughout human history, there's been only one way of salvation. One way of salvation only, and that has always been through faith in God's provision for our sin. Now, recognizing that God's provision has been progressively revealed in scriptures, that from the very beginning, the first revelation of God's provision for salvation was where? Genesis 3, right? The promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. Now, nowhere do you find in that verse that says, oh, this is Jesus Christ. You need to believe in him. But there is the promise of salvation for their sin. And for Adam and Eve and for their descendants in that period, they would have had to believe that, put their trust in that. And we see that promise was, would be progressively revealed and always throughout history, even in the period of Israel when they exist in the law, God's revelation was to be obeyed by through faith, that there was to be saved by faith, just as Abraham was saved by faith. Now, as we come to study this section, then we come to see really this wonderful truth about in that when we look at Old Testament, we look at New Testament, they're really not two ways of salvation. They're really pointing to the one and same thing, that the offer of salvation to the nations here in, in the Old Testament is exactly what we will find in the New Testament, that the offer of salvation is the same. The gospel message is, very, is, is similar principles and truths. We can divide this passage into four observations about God's offer of salvation here in Isaiah. And when you hear these Four observations, you're going to notice that I mean, these are New Testament principles as well. If you had read your New Testament first and then you read your Old Testament, you say, well, that's just what it is. And but these were taught in the Old Testament already. First, to Israel and to the nations who would come to salvation through Israel. We see uh, the first then, first uh, 
principle that we learn here about this Lord's call to nations, that salvation is for those who hunger and thirst. Salvation has been and always will be for those who hunger and thirst. <laughs> I'm going to laugh a little bit because my stomach feels a little hungry. But it's not what, you mean, not what we're thinking, okay? I know if you're hungry and thirsty, it's not in that sense. Let's read verse 1 of chapter 55. Ho, or behold, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. God is not offering literal water, wine, and milk to people. You know, that's not how it works. There's no dispensary here where, hey, this is where you're going to get water, wine, and milk, so just come and buy from God. The fall, really, because the, the, the context that follows indicates that this is a spiritual uh, figure. These are to be figuratively understood. That salvation from sin is in mind. The Lord is offering spiritual drink to those who are spiritually thirsty, to those who are spiritually hungry, to those who are spiritually poor. Three times in verse 1, the invitation to come to him is made. Come to me. Come if you are thirsty. Come to me if you're hungry. Come if you are poor. But the principle that we learn here is that salvation, the invitation to salvation, is made to those who recognize their need. You don't just come to Jesus because you're curious. You don't come to Jesus because you just want to cover your bases. You come to Jesus because you recognize you're thirsty spiritually. You're dying from spiritual thirst. You're dying from spiritual hunger. You're dying from spiritual poverty and you recognize that you're desperate and you have a great need, and that need is met from in the Messiah, God's provision. These words remind us of Jesus' own words in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, salvation is for those who recognize their sin and their need for salvation. And those who do will then come to him in faith. It says, come to me, all who are weak and weary. You don't come to him if you're strong and healthy. You come to him when you're weak and weary, and he will give us rest. doesn't matter who you are. If you are thirsty, if you are hungry, and you're poor in your righteousness, because you lack righteousness, you may come to the Lord for salvation, and God will provide your every need. There's even insight here. It says, even God tells you to buy. But how do we buy if we're poor? We have no money. Because God has already made the payment for us. He's made the payment through his son who suffered for our sake. Anyways, we move on. There's a second kind of observation about this salvation that's for all nations. And that is, in verses 3 to 7, salvation is for those who seek him. So if you are thirsty, if you're hungry, what are you going to do? You're not going to sit there, oh, I just hope that water and bread are going to flop down in my, my lap. I'm going to go seek where I can find water, where I can find bread. And so salvation is for those who seek him. Verse 3 through 7 of chapter 55. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. All are called to incline their ear and listen to the Lord. And God promises to make an everlasting covenant with those who do. A covenant that's, in, that's like, it's in according with his covenant promises to David even. This covenant, of course, will be fulfilled not in David, but in the Messiah, in the Messianic servant, whom God, notice, has made a witness, a testimony, not just to the people, Israel, but to the peoples, plural. We kind of mentioned that on all occasions. Whenever it's plural peoples, it refers to the nations, the Gentiles. But when it's singular people in the Old Testament, it's a reference to the nation Israel. See, the Messiah who comes as a witness, as a testimony of salvation, won't just be the Israel, the Israel's leader, Israel's commander, but he will be the nation's leader, the Gentile's leader, the Gentile's commander. He will be our king. Now, Israel, as God's chosen nation, has a role to play. Even here in these verses, uh, in verse 5, there's a reference how they will be instrumental in calling these nations to the Messiah. They don't know, but God's going to use them to bring nations to himself. And verses 6 to 7 are the key. Verse 6 is is probably the clearest gospel invitation, invitation to salvation in all of the Old Testament. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is an invitation to salvation through faith. Verse 6, and repentance in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him return. That is, turn in repentance to the Lord. Faith is described here as seeking the Lord and calling upon him for salvation. Faith is trusting in God, what God's provision for our salvation. It's trusting that salvation is not something that I can attain by myself, but it's something that I must find in the Lord and in who he provides salvation to me, that is through his son, the Messiah. This principle is confirmed by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.6. Faith is described here as, uh, or, sorry, faith, and, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarder of those who seek him. Belief and seeking are synonymous here. You believe, you, those who are going to trust in God are going to seek him. And the encouragement of verse 6 is, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. The implication is that there is going to be a time where he may not be found. There's going to be a time where he may not be near. There will be a time when it will be too late to respond to seek the Messiah, to seek salvation from the Lord. And this will take place in, at two particular times. It will be either too late when, if Christ returns at his second coming, or it will be too late at your death, whichever comes first. All of us here, we don't know our, the number of our days. Some may, may walk out of these doors and enter into eternity and not come back. Here, if you are here and you've not yet believed in Jesus Christ, you've not put your faith in the Messiah, 
Christ who died on the cross for your sins. Seek him now while he may be found. Do not wait. Do not hold. So I need to learn more. I need to understand more. If you've heard what, if you've been with us the last few weeks and you've just heard about Jesus, why he came on the earth, why he was born, he came and was born to bring salvation to us. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of favor. Believe in him now. Call upon his name now for salvation and learn more about it as you walk with him. Now, I understand. Some 20 plus years ago, I was in some of the shoes of some of you that may be sitting among us. You've been hearing the things that we've been teaching, and you maybe are interested, maybe even want to believe. At least you say you want to believe. But you just, in the back of your mind, just can't be sure if all of this is really true. How do I know it's all true? How do I know that this is, you know, this is what, this is the absolute word of God and, and, he is, and, and therefore I can believe in it. That's where the next point is very important for you. The next point we find in verse 8 to 13, that salvation is for those who trust in his word. God just calls you to trust. You know, there are many ways that God has shown and evidence that his word is trustworthy. We can just start with the prophecies that are fulfilled. But God calls you just to simply recognize who he is and recognize who you are and trust in him. Let's look at verse 8 through 13 of chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. God offers here in this lengthy section an explanation as to why you should trust in him and not yourself. Why you should trust in his word more than your word. Because his thoughts, he says, his ways are higher and superior than yours. Quite frankly, he's God and you're man. And God, is, in his word, has revealed this wonderful, amazing plan of salvation in this book this book that, by the way, is even as you study it from a, just a, a technical standpoint, it's astounding. A book written by 40 different authors, 40 plus different authors in three different languages over 1,500 years is one of the most amazing, life-transforming, not just life-transforming, world-transforming books in all human history. 
And what's more, it reveals this magnificent plan of salvation that is so intricate in details, from Genesis to Revelation, how there's a great parallelism and everything matches together. There's great imagery that just repeats throughout the scriptures. There are details that are fulfilled to a T as we look in Isaiah 53. But yet this intricate, detailed, magnificent salvation is yet so simple. As simple a child can get it. A child can believe in it. It's been said that man's thoughts, man's ways of reaching God are called religion. And that man's religions could be summarized by the word do. That when man comes up with religion, we give you a, a, a set of lists and what you should do to gain salvation. Do this or do that. But not with God. When God offers salvation, his salvation is described by the word done. Done. All that is required for salvation he has accomplished in his son. The payment for sin has been provided in his son once and for all. Even the response of the, to, to believe in him is a gift from him that he gives us. The eyes to see, the ears to hear are gifts from him. He, through his spirit, the gift of regeneration that he does in our hearts, all are done. We just simply must respond and believe, receive this one who has provision of our sin. A simple salvation message. <laughs> and what's more, not only is this the, the simple, is so simple and beautiful, but God's word that we depend upon is a reliable word. God says here, and, and we've just something I pray often on Sunday mornings, that God, whatever, when he, he will always accomplish whatever he intends for his word to do. Even this morning, as he causes to go forth, I have great confidence that's going to accomplish exactly what he wants it to do in each and every one of you who hear his word. It will bring salvation to, to those who need it. It will bring repentance to those of us who need repenting. It will bring a worse cause of great worship and love for those of us who need to worship and love him more. You can trust in God's word. It is an effective word. How many of us have been transformed by God's word at different occasions? You know, I might stand here. I love preaching because, you know, it's where I can fail and God's spirit can still take his word and bring about mighty transformation of hearts. That's the wonder of this task of preaching God's word. It is his word that is sure. It is that which will produce joy and peace in those who trust in it. And to trust in his word is to trust in the one whom the word points to, that is his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's a fourth and final principle about this salvation that's, that extends to all the nations and to all people, and that is found in chapter 56, verse 1 to 8. They see salvation is for all people. It's for all people. There's much here in verse 1 to 8 that we could get into, but I just want to emphasize, point out how these verses emphasize that salvation is for Anyone and everyone, it's, it's offered to all. Thus says the Lord, verse 1 of chapter 56, Preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing an evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, 
and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. God is now returning really to address the Israelites. And he calls them to, in verse 1 and 2, to live in light of the salvation that is about to come to them. They're to preserve justice. They're to take these actions. As those who are a faithful remnant, he calls them to respond to him by living in righteousness and justice. Now, keep in mind, we, we just really said that there's nothing they need to do for salvation, so this is not so they may be saved. But this is a response that flows out of a faith, that those who, respond, who are believe in the Lord will respond in obedience and righteousness. And to them, then, to those who, as he speaks to Israel, he wants Israel to hear a final word that he would, God would have for two particular groups of people. In fact, really odd that God would have Israel, as he's addressing Israel, to, to think about these two groups. These groups, two groups, are foreigners, generally, and eunuchs, specifically. It's like a message that if God was speaking to us as a church, all of a sudden, God says, I have a special message, as he's talking to us, for the, for the unbelievers there in the world. You know, we're the church. We don't need to hear a message to unbelievers. Or that he would say, I have a message for, the most, uh, for those who would, who would hate Christianity, for those who are, uh, who are practicing other religions. We'll say, well, what does that have to do with this? What does a message to Buddhists or to uh, Muslims have to do with a message to Christians? That's kind of the oddity of it all. Why, did God, why did, would God give this message to foreigners and eunuchs? Well, these two groups were, would have are shocking because they were people who generally were forbidden from participating in the assembly of the, of the, of the nation Israel. Foreigners were not allowed uh, into, uh, into their practice. They were, they were not even allowed to take the Passover, for instance. Eunuchs, particularly because they were castrated, and they were considered unclean, and they would not be allowed to approach God uh, and, and offer their sacrifices. And though the Mosaic law prevented these groups from participating in the assembly of the nation of Israel, God assures them that his salvation is for them as well. That even these who would be normally considered excluded are now included. They will be welcome in the Lord's house of prayer. Their sacrifices will be acceptable to him. And this is all, this sacrifice is all referring to the future millennial kingdom. The end of verse 7, the, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations, is quoted by Jesus in Mark eleven seventeen, When he cleansed the temple, and that's very, it's, and where Jesus cleansed the temple of all the, the people who were buying and selling and, and exchanging money. And these were, quote, unquote, business services that the temple was providing for people, people who traveled from afar to come and worship. 
But when Jesus saw them, you know, he does, he's realized, man, here are people coming from afar, and you're ripping them off. You're turning my house into a, a house of business. And he casts them all out. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer, and it'll be a house of prayer for everybody, for all the nations. And lastly, even verse 8 is uh, the promise that the Lord, and ha- that the Lord has, that others that, he, that has others that he will gather to be part of his, his people. He'll quote in John, Jesus will quote in John 10, 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. There even Jesus, in speaking to the people of Israel, teaching much of Israel, we taught them that there will be others who will be added. Others will come from the nations. And it's kind of really neat that God promises to foreigners, to the eunuch, that they will be part of, uh, of his kingdom. They'll be part of that future. Because it's in the, in the really, uh, I can't, for lack of a better word, it's just the cool providence of God, okay? I'm just going to call that cool providence of God. In Acts chapter 8, who was among the first of those who would, uh, from the nations who had come to saving faith in the Messiah? A foreigner and a eunuch, right? You know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch. The foreigner who was a eunuch comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ because Philip comes alongside and says, hey, do you know what you're reading? And what is he reading? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Salvation is not only for Israel, but God intends salvation to be to the nations, to the foreigners and to the eunuchs. Those who are excluded can now be included because of the Messiah that's come. And he wants everyone, no matter who you are, you think you're excluded in any way, if you think, well, no, not because of me. No, you don't know. I have, I'm this kind of a sinner. No, I, I, I'm an adulterer. Is there, is there any salvation for me? I'm caught up in sexual sins. Is there salvation for me? I've lied and I've stolen from my workplace. Is there salvation for me? I've never fit in anywhere. I have, I have a mental illness is there salvation for me? No matter who you are, there is salvation for you in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Messiah. It's freely offered, whether you're foreigner, eunuch, and everything in between, to including the Jews. You can believe that. So what can we take away from this call to Gentiles, this, this saving faith? That is this, that God has one plan of salvation. One plan of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. A salvation that has always been through faith, and it's been through his faith in this one who is promised. We call him the Messiah or the Christ. And he is Jesus of Nazareth. And he came and was born to live and to die on the cross for our sins. So that everyone who recognizes that they are spiritually thirsty, hungry, and poor can come to him. So that everyone who seeks after spiritual salvation, forgiveness of sins, may find him through faith. So that everyone who puts her, their trust in the promises of salvation that he has made in his word may find it. And this salvation is freely offered for all. No matter who you are, you may come and drink freely and eat freely 
at the table of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us through our series in Isaiah, then you've learned much about the Lord's Messiah. And I, I pray, especially today, you know, you're going to walk out here and say, I, I think I heard something about dispensational theology today. I hope that it will not just be head knowledge theology, but I hope that it will cause you to, res- to walk out here rem- thinking, re- understanding how great this salvation is that we have and this salvation that is in, his, in the Son. And that you will cause you to respond to this truth. If you've already received the Messiah, then you will love God more. You'll want to worship him more. But also, understanding this, that's this great task we've been given, this task unfinished, is a task that we want to we'll share this message with others around the world, and in our neighborhoods, and our families, and our schools, and our workplaces. But I also have a final word to those of you here, here who do not yet know Jesus, who have not yet believed in him, I ask and invite you, again, what God would invite you to, that you would seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Turn from your wicked ways and find salvation in him. No matter how far you have gone in sin, salvation is freely available to everyone who believes. Will you believe today? Will you turn to him today? Will you call upon his name today and be saved? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of salvation that is centered upon your son. And Lord, we do pray as a church here. We pray first and foremost that we would grow in our love for you, that we've walk out here with a greater appreciation of our salvation, how it is a salvation that is not only is generous and that is not only for Israel, but extends to other nations as well. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray that as we've learned about the Messiah, that we respond, that we would not just take this as ho-hum, that's something to take for granted, but that it's something that would cause us to react and respond in a way that is evident we have met the Messiah cause us to be in love with you, to love you more, and that that love would cause us to love the people whom you sent your Messiah for, that would love the world that you, the, the world that you, that, that you loved, that would tell them about your love, and tell them about your son. And then, Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here still who does not yet know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that today they would seek him, today they would call upon him and be saved. Cause them to see their sinfulness, their, their spiritual hunger and thirst, their spiritual poverty, and help them to see how they can be fed and, 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 and satiated and satisfied through faith in Jesus who died on the cross for their sins. Oh, Lord, we pray this, that you will be glorified, that your salvation would continue to go forth, that your salvation would literally reach the ends of the earth so that your name would be magnified, and that the name of Jesus Christ would be glorified. And Father, we thank you and praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.